I didn't go out to clubs or partying or anything or to bars until I was like 18, 19. I, I didn't have a fake ID or anything. I was like, I was a good boy. Welcome to Here There Be Dragons. This season, I'm taking you to Stockholm. I'm your host, Jess Myers. Episode 8, Little Saturday. The drinking culture. Rich, young people partying. Like people being rude and... People drink a lot. Typical. To, to, to be more sociable. Kind of guys. There's like a lot of strange people there. If you're a little bit drunk, then maybe you're a bit loud and... I show my queerness in a big way. Some of the best memories also have the worst memories. Although you may be fooled into thinking that I'm a lavish partier, I have, in fact, the nightlife tastes of a little old lady. Sure, I'll go to dinner and split a bottle of wine, but when it comes to clubs, I am a notorious sipper and may have already called a car by the time anyone gets around to ask me if I'm having a good time. But as a young person in Stockholm, I was quickly informed that this was profoundly unacceptable behavior. So in Stockholm, I had to switch things up a little bit, you know, for research. Enter Wednesday nights, or what Swedes call Little Saturday. The best guides I could hope for attempted to show me the party scene of Stockholm. And, dear listener, I could not keep up. But even from the vantage point of the corner of the dance floor, I could see a certain change in the people of Stockholm. The shy, the awkward, the normies, if you will, would really loosen up. Gone was the image of the diligent, hardworking Swede, and in came the karaoke-shrieking, booty-shaking, openly-flirting people of the night. And what made all this possible? How were Swedes casting off the norms of a mere two episodes ago and letting their hair down? Unlike uh, other vodkas, uh, we only use the wheat that uh, comes from uh, approximately uh, 338 uh, farms around Åhus, uh, Sweden. Well, a little libation doesn't hurt. Maybe not a little. In a country known for both pragmatic Protestantism and absolute vodka, you can imagine that there is some anxiety around alcohol that swings between enjoyment and control, a spectrum of emotion that simmers in the background of Stockholm's nightlife. This episode will be talking about the party, the club, the bar, the nightlife of the city. Drinking in Sweden is somewhat of an institution, with traditions and rituals that date back hundreds of years. But throughout the country's history, drunkenness has taken on different meanings for different people. For the upper class, it was a privilege. It meant that you had the taste for fine wines and fine brandies, 
and that you could afford a life of leisure. Yes, we have problems with alcohol, described as neurotic. But for the lower class, being drunk was seen as an obstacle to productivity. If people drank, could they get up and work in the morning? Over the centuries, Sweden has tried different experiments in state monopoly and control over the consumption of liquor. In 1775, the monarchy claimed exclusive rights to distilling spirits to control the nation's drinking. But by 1917, the government implemented ration books where you could be approved to purchase up to four liters of strong liquor each month. However, this measure went up or down depending on who you were and what the government deemed best for you. For example, single women in their 30s were granted some of the smallest allowances, while married wealthy men were granted some of the largest. But Swedes were understandably not very happy about a system that relied on gendered and classist stereotypes. So, by 1955, the country came up with the current method of regulation, the revered and exasperating Systembolaget. The largest monopoly in the world is Systembolaget, a state-run chain store for alcohol. Although these state-run liquor stores are no longer the world's largest monopoly, they remain the only establishments outside of restaurants that are able to sell liquor stronger than 3.5% alcohol by volume. So if you're looking for a tame beer or cider, the grocery store will serve you well. But wine, whiskey, or vodka, off to the system bolaget. So, why does Sweden need all this regulation in the first place? In her 1969 essay, A Letter from Sweden, Susan Sontag observed, Such an uptight world has to have a safety valve. Here, it's drink. Alcohol has the status in Sweden of a mythic substance, the magic elixir that gives one permission to release aggression and allow intimacy. But she also said... No other people have attacked the dangers of alcoholism with the punitive ferocity of the Swedes. The result is that they do indeed have a liquor problem, but it's as much or more a national neuroses about alcohol. While a letter from Sweden was a controversial essay when it was published, many Swedes did see their own experiences reflected in Sontag's observations. A night of drinking becomes a kind of permission to be social and to relax. But when you do away with the old expected norms, what's left over can be uncertain, towing that fine line between exciting and threatening. Two nights ago, like Saturday night, I would be walking home on Götgatan, which is the, the central shopping street on Södermalm. And there was like a crew of guys. And one of them would look me in the eye and he'd be like, Oh, hi there, cowboy. Because I was wearing a hat, like similar to a cowboy hat. And I saw that this was like a pretty drunk guy out with his friends. I looked at him and I smiled and I said, howdy. And he said, oh, this guy is, he was, he was really nice, he said to his friends as I was walking by. I don't think that would happen if he was not had not been drinking. The sober Swede is pretty reserved, I would say, compared to a lot of places like New York, for instance. Like people are much more, in in my opinion, open for communication with a stranger like that you haven't met before. But here in Stockholm, that doesn't happen much unless people are drinking. 
that's like a huge thing in Swedish culture, like the drinking culture. We are very much reserved, I would say, and also quite lonely, according to like surveys. And people drink a lot to be more sociable. That can be a thing that not scares me, but it makes me a little bit aware. Like when people are drinking and they're very drunk because, yeah, they tend to do stupid stuff. More than New York or Paris, Stockholmers brought up alcohol as something that put them on alert, even when they were having a good time. For residents we spoke to, there was a heightened sense of awareness around neighborhoods that were known for drinking and partying. Stureplan in Ostermalm, alongside Megaborgsplatsen and Jatgarten in Södermalm, really stood out to people. Well, you know, in, in, in the evenings and especially in the weekends, more people are out and more people are drunk and... Uh... There's a, definitely a different feeling. Jotgarten and Megaborgsplatsen are both in Södermalm, which we already know are places where posh thrill-seekers tend to hang out. Most Stockholmers we spoke to knew when to join in and when to steer clear. You always hear, like, around Medborgsplatsen is where, um, like, the crime statistics for, for, like, violent crimes and stuff like that is the highest. But that's also because it's one of the busiest places where where people go for partying and I would wouldn't say I feel unsafe there Friday or Saturday evening but I think it's definitely a good idea to be sort of I don't know on the alert a little bit I mean the rowdiness comes from one particular place in Estman which is to me the neighborhood that really caught my attention when talking about nightlife was Stureplan. I don't like the area around Stureplan. Stureplan. Which is the going out kind of area. Stureplan is an Ostermalm. If there would be a colonial center, it would be Ostermalm. What you may recall from episode two is the city's snooty business district. Extremely homogeneous, so white. Kind of reminds <laughs> me of my difference. Probably felt the least safe around Stureplan, actually. Like anything you you would associate it with the rich young people partying. Well, Stureplan is where the nightlife is, like in Ostermalm. That's where I think I would feel the least welcome as a young person. Östermalm, or especially Stureplan, is very consistent in in the look of it. But yeah, but also like just going to an area where there's only white people is also, you know, kind of excluding. You feel out of place. But even more if it's white people wearing nice clothes. And now I'm talking as like how I felt as when I was young rather than today. It was hard for me to imagine that the rich aristocratic neighborhood in the center of town was starting the party. But Stureplan is a little square in the midst of boutiques and banks where the wealthy and those who can garner that crucial nod of approval from an intimidating bouncer can party. Walk around there late at night, you're going to see a lot of like kind of fucked up stuff. Because that was the place where people would go out, like people being rude. I don't know much about it, but I avoid it. If I walk. Like people that have like a lot of money and doesn't seem to care really about other things than themselves. You had to watch out after a certain hour. So it was mostly around safety as a young woman. This area where the clubs are at, it's just a mal normal. There's this like really long street. It's like well known for prostitution. 
One of the Stockholmers we talked to is Samantha. She dances at a strip club not far from Stirraplan. She gave us the rundown of the clubbing ecosystem there and how she navigates it as a young woman. I think it's kind of interesting how these clubs are like really close by to the street. And uh, it's like the hidden red light district of Stockholm. Just that it's very like hidden because yeah, there's like no such thing in Stockholm. But that's an area generally where a lot of like people buy sex. Most people know it's there, but I don't think uh, a lot of people like put it together with the clubs. But it's more like a personal observation I've made, like how close that uh, famous like street, uh, sex work street is to these clubs. So it feels like the sex buyers, a lot of them are this like typical Östermalm kind of guys that like uh, works in this area and then goes party at Stureplan and then like comes there. I don't really feel scared. I can be a bit... It's mostly that you're afraid that someone is going to be like outside like targeting you. And there's been times when like guest has followed like girls when they're walking home or whatever uh, afterwards. But uh, I mean, a lot of times we also leave like together and like two and two or like in groups because that feels safer. I mean, about the guests, you with time you learn how to handle them. Even with the complicated landscape of Stirraplan and other party scenes, the residents we spoke to weren't staying in with a good book or knitting a sweater at home. No, they still liked to join in and have fun. But there was this constant expectation of a mixed bag, like the party could go south at any time, but it was still worth the risk. Some of the best memories also have the worst memories. The most uncomfortable or threatening moments happens in the most beautiful, safest places. And I think that is quite telling for a city like Stockholm. There aren't in my point of view, any bad places. Uh, Stockholm made very, very, very (laughs) sure that there aren't. The places might be like, that are like famously considered a bad place in the city center is Sargelstoy, the uh, Plattan by T-centralen and uh, Medborgarplatsen. Medborgarplatsen in Södermalm is probably because it's quite dense with nightlife Uh, and also Björnsträggård is a little little park next to the the square Uh, it's also where a lot of drug dealing happens and also Sägerstoy has this history of drug dealing and also being in the city centre so I guess they are considered dangerous of very natural causes in Södermalm at the uh, Götgatan and it was like close to this bar where it's like uh, there is like a lot of strange people there. It was like a assault like from nowhere. I got like a punch in the face and I went down and, and then he was gone and I was like what happened? <laughs> when I got like in trouble it was often because there was something that they got really pissed at. Maybe I had like braided hair. I guess I, it was like some sort of. I, often it was like maybe how, how I was dressed or something. I, I think that I do check myself a bit more and extra when I'm at places or, um, around the subway um, because it gathers a lot of people and you don't and like it's uh, 
everybody's there, so you don't really know what people are going to get, um, who's going to get on, and what they're going to think of you. And if you're a little bit drunk, then maybe you're a bit loud, and I show my queerness in a big way, and that maybe not enjoy people. Outside of the risk of unpredictable violence or even assault, some residents also questioned whether they would be welcome to enjoy themselves on a night out. You, you cannot hide away from, you know, the way you look and the way you move and the way you talk from and what kind of money you're connected to. But, I mean, in general, I've never experienced, I never heard anyone, you know, really experience that they've been turned down when sitting in an exclusive restaurant. I mean, you can go to the best restaurant in Stockholm and as long as you pay your bill, they won't mind. They won't even mind your way of clothing, you know. You have access if you have money. But, you know, having access uh, by being able to pay the bill, it's not the same thing as feeling welcome. I'm part of this middle class. We were kids when we came. We lived in the poor areas. Our parents were poor or they are still poor. Uh, but we had this, you know, kind of a class this traveling of classes. We went from this poor working class to some kind of middle class where we, you know, we, we could gain more cultural capital. And with that generally came also more economic capital. Not that we own so much that we can control others' work, but, you know, we can consume quite fancy stuff if we like clothing and culture and, and uh, you know, food. So we have, so we, we invade these, you know, traditional white spaces. And most of us look like people who are not supposed to be there. So in a way, we are dirty, you know. The definition of dirt is something that's in the wrong place. We're in the wrong place. And so, I mean, but in a city like Stockholm, the beautiful thing is that it's so many of us that we can have our hubs and our places where we can quite safely do that. But there... But there are these, you know, this subtle structure of signals in this city, like in all cities, where you can't be free and safe when, do, when, when trying to crossing the, these boundaries. Uh, still reminding that, I mean, it's not so dramatic in Stockholm, but in terms of hospitality and generosity and the way people, you, you can feel it. You can feel it. And of course, you feel it through this kind of rude, rudeness. I'm sure you're wondering, if these Stockholmers are so stressed about partying, why even go out? Well, not every club scene is Störeplan, Megaborgsplatsen, or Jatgaten, the kind of scenes that are so big that they can feel completely anonymous. And don't get me wrong, that kind of night is some people's jam, but there are scenes that cater towards a different vibe. On a well-curated scene, nightlife doesn't have to be a source of stress. It can even be a form of liberation. For many queer Stockholmers we spoke to, the now-disappearing network of queer bars and clubs were a place to be comfortable and make community. Asenia is one well-known queer club promoter. I started doing a little club in the bar, which was like full if it was like 30 people or 25 people. It was really, really, it was sort of like this room, really, really small with a bar, um, which I got for free. I mean, I, it was just a bar. So, I mean, it was more of a, like to get together, listen to music, 
having a laugh, drinking a beer or whatever you like, and just hanging out. And then it grew. And so first it was at Maria Torget, and then it went to Gamla Stan, to this gay place, which was like chandeliers in the roof, really big windows, uh, to like lift the lesbian community out of the uh, the the cellars, not the cellars, what do you call it, the basements, to show that we exist, sort of like. And it grew and it grew, and and um, I did a lot of collaborations with different people, friends in that term. But then my former partner and I split up, and so Puma, which was the name of the club, um, I couldn't like do it anymore because this was so much our good thing. One of her most famous projects, Slick, quickly grew into an award-winning, inclusive club that could draw hundreds of revelers a night. I got this offer to try out something new. So we got the, the offer to do whatever we want, how many times we want, during the summer of 2002. And that was the terms. You don't have to promise them anything, we just want to try it out. And I was like, that is amazing. I mean, when, when do you get that kind of offer nowadays that, that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, how many times you want, during what hours you want. I was thinking about it, this offer, and I was like, this is too good to be true. So then a friend of mine, I played the DJ at his club, um, and he came in and, he, and I saw him and I was like, I need a partner, I need someone who is different for me to, um, I don't know, do this thing that I wanted to do. Because I wasn't sure what it was. I just wanted to do something else, explore whatever that was. So that's how Slick started, which was a club for everyone. It was um, a room of courage. like. Anything goes. The thing was like dance, drink, have fun, respect each other, behave, don't be an asshole. And if you don't like it, you may leave. Like that was the terms, which was really fairly okay, I thought. (laughs) It was voted club of the year in Stockholm several years in a row and got all kinds of awards and was the hippest thing ever for years. And it was packed every night you had it open you know she's being modest well yeah but I I was saying that that the first uh, night I was really nervous because we didn't know how it would go and 300 people came and it was so cool it was like you know magical but I I had that for uh, 16 years actually When Asenia was building her club scenes, Sodermalm had a strong ecosystem of queer, gay, and lesbian bookstores, bars, and clubs. But as the city center got more and more expensive, these brick-and-mortar establishments were pushed out alongside the people who created them. It's been the queer neighborhood. There used to be lots of queer bars and restaurants and cafes and, you know, especially down around Hornstoll. So that used to be my favorite place. Um... And, I mean, around Maria Torriet, I don't know if that's the right place, but um, but the city's changing so much so that a lot of those places aren't as comfortable anymore. What made it change, I think, was gentrification. Um, 
So Hohenstoll in the early 2000s was still not a hip place. It became a hip place, and then eventually the a different kind of crowd took over. Um, a younger generation, a resource generation. Um, I think the reason why a lot of the queer spaces disappeared was partly because it became too expensive for many of these places, and many could, and then the, they became very attractive areas, and so people were offered significant money to sell their businesses that were probably, you know. They're, they're, they were doing okay, but they weren't necessarily making buckets of money, right? So eventually people got exhausted from standing behind the bar or serving coffee forever and were able to sell. Whether a little or a regular Saturday, in Stockholm, a night out can be a mix of joy and anxiety. Most of those partying in the city were on alert for both. And when I went out, clubs were a mixed bag. They could be an awkward place where fitting in felt impossible, or they could be fun and surprising places to meet new people. I once stumbled into a DJ set by the Swedish pop star Robin after listening to poetry demanding the rights and recognition of indigenous Scandinavians. So, you know, anything's possible. Thank you, Next episode, we're taking a closer look at another side of anxiety in the city. For me, it was the train station that started it all, T-Centralen. We are produced with the generous support of the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts and Konstnarsnamden, the Swedish Arts Grants Committee. Thank you to our senior producer, Adelie Pajman-Ponte, and our team of graduate assistants from the Architecture Department at the Rhode Island School of Design. Kimberly Ayala Nahera. Bilal Ismail Ahmad. Daniel Guerrero. Uthman Aloa. Fatu Kamara consults for the show. Corey Jacobs does the music, and Adrian Lilly is our sound designer. If you're not a Patreon subscriber yet, this might be your last chance to support your friendly neighborhood urbanism podcast and get some beautiful stickers, as well as exclusive mini-episodes. All drugs, everything that is not alcohol, is foreign to Swedish culture. On social media, we are at dragons underscore podcast or check us out on our website and newsletter, all full of fun content like readings, maps, and videos. The season's almost over if you can believe it. If you have a comment or a question, now is your chance. We really want to hear from you. Record and send your thoughts to us at htbdpodcast at gmail.com. You might end up on the show. And last but certainly not least, rate and review us five shining stars wherever you stream the show. Until next time, this has been Here There Be Dragons. I loved it. It was really cool.